Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. read together this evening from Luke's Gospel. Uh, We were in Luke's Gospel last week, Luke again this evening. And I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, and from verse 21. Verse 21 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. You'll find it on page 859 in the Church Bibles, page 859. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. And as you go down through the verses, all the great names of Israel's history are here. The Lord Jesus is the son of all these men connected to them. Look at verse 31. The son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matat, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, of Eber, of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. May God bless to us his holy word. One of the things that we have often done in our church family over uh, several years is prayed together for the nation of Japan. Uh, We know the Ferguson family there, don't we? We have other missionaries uh, that we're connected to in different ways. We're conscious of the hardness of that nation of Japan, aren't we, in many ways. And a few weeks ago, I suggested that every time you turned on the TV for the Olympics and saw the Olympics happening in Japan, to pray for Japan. So this past week, I read this story with sorrow. Uh, the, the, the headline was Tokyo's Apologetic Medalists. I don't know if you saw this. It, it was the gut-wrenching sight of Japanese athletes during the Olympics apologizing to the nation and to their families for their failure to win gold medals. Even second-place finishers triggered tearful expressions of remorse. I am truly sorry, wrestler Kenichiro Fumita, after he gained a silver medal in wrestling, I am truly sorry that I ended up with this shameful result. Now, this is an instinct in Japanese culture that is cultivated from childhood that failure to achieve the best means you have let yourself, your family, your nation down. And of course, you take a step back and you wonder, is it any wonder it's a hard country for the gospel? It's hard not to feel that is an oppressive culture, isn't it? But here is what that highlights. Here's what I thought as I read that story. What do we do with failure? What do we do with failure? Whether it is very real or whether it is uh, falsely imposed on us, what do we do with it? There are many different approaches, aren't there, in the business world or the education world or politics or finance. Many people, of course, point to how failure can actually be a healthy thing. C.S. Lewis said, failures are signposts on the road to achievement. Signposts on the road to achievement. My, my, my personal favorite quote of all time about failure comes from Winston Churchill. Churchill said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. I, I, I love that. That's a great one, isn't it? Stumbling from failure to failure, smiling all the way. I think, I think we get this, don't we, in a way? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But there is another type of failure, isn't there, that nobody ever says this will lead to achievement. There is moral failure, spiritual failure. 
The kind of failure that leaves a person left looking at themselves thinking, I am not the man I thought I was or the the woman I wanted to be, would like to be. I have fallen short of my own standards for myself and therefore how much more have I fallen short of God's standards, fallen short of God's glory? there There is the failure that the Bible calls sin, isn't there? And it is not just what we do sins, but who we are, sinners, failure sexually, failure relationally, failure as a a father, as a mother, as a spouse, as a child, as a friend, as a colleague, as a disciple. We know just what that is like, don't we? Each of us do, if we're honest. And some of us are sitting here this evening with that record playing in our heads as we're listening, what does God think of me? Failure. Blown it. And we just don't get past that. Every single time that plays in our heads as we come close to God in some way, it is like a a nagging suspicion at the back of our minds. And every time we think like that, friends, we miss something about the gospel. And something about the Lord Jesus that is leaving us thinking like that. Last week, you remember, I said it is time to change the record. Not what does God think of me, but what does God think of Jesus? What does God think of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what I want us to just keep seeing for a few Sunday evenings together. And this evening, I want to preach the gospel to us, to you, to me, myself. I want to preach good news to you. Old, young, male, female, boy, girl. To each of us here, holding the broken pieces of our lives in our hands and 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 we're left realizing we cannot just stick things back together again. Things are broken. We've failed. Here in front of us this evening, Luke chapter 3 and 4 is a good news story told in a beautiful way. A beautiful story. So what I want to do this evening is I want to show you the scale of the story in front of us. I want to take the Bible passage that you've got and we're going to stretch it open. I'm going to see the scale of it. And then I want us to feel what hangs in the balance here. Something is hanging in the balance. And then thirdly, finally, I want us to cherish the obedience of the Son. I want you to cherish the obedience of the Son. I want us to see something. I want us to feel something. I want us to cherish something. I want this evening, friends, something about the Lord Jesus Christ to be to become, if it's not already, very, very precious to you. So three points. See the scale of the story. Feel what hangs in the balance. And cherish the obedience of the Son. You know, the first point, see the scale of the story. You know, sometimes a story unfolds in front of our eyes and the scale of it takes us by surprise, doesn't it? I was like this years ago when I went to see the first Lord of the Rings film. I am a cultural Philistine. So to my, to my immense surprise, as I watched this most amazing film, I realized at the end of it that it, the, the, the first one, there's more. There's two more coming. 
Of course, if you'd read the book, you know exactly what's happening, don't you? But I had no idea that this was just going to keep going and going. Some of you will have seen uh, the film called The Tree of Life by Terence Malick. And that, this is a remarkable film. If you, it's worth getting out and uh, downloading it, whatever you do, to watch it. It's a remarkable film because it's a film with A-list celebrities. It's Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain acting in it. But it is the story of the book of Job on screen. So Sean Penn in the film plays a character, Jack O'Brien, J-O-B. And do you remember when, when, when God speaks to Job? Uh, Job is coming to God and, you know, he, he puts all his angst in front of God, doesn't he? All his questions. And God responds with a question. He says to Job, Job, can you tell me, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And what you get in Terence, Terence Malick's film is you actually, you get him attempting to show you the foundations of the earth being laid. So you have this family and their trauma. And then without warning, the screen flicks all the way back to volcanoes erupting. And it, it's like that. You get 10 minutes of volcanoes erupting. Malik's idea of the, the foundations of the earth being laid. Well, what he's doing is trying to put in front of us the sheer scale of the universe. He is stretching the, the parameters of reality to, to try and make sense of this one particular sorrow and story. And friends, this passage in front of us is exactly that. Luke is stretching, stretching, stretching the parameters. See, as we look at it here, this is the Lord Jesus beginning his public ministry, isn't it? From verse 21 onwards of chapter 3, he is now taking center stage in the gospel. From here on, it is all going to be about him, who he is, what he says, what he does. And here's the thing. Jesus is taking center stage in a world of failure. A world of failure. Just look back at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. This is John the Baptist speaking. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, John, John the Baptist is not addressing people who are a success, is he? No, this, this is a world of religious failure, religious pride. These are people who said, we have Abraham as our father. And John has come to them, church-going people, preaching what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A message for failures. Look at verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. A message for financial failures. Verse 14. Soldiers came and said, what shall we do? Powerful failures. Men with muscle who had the ability to extort and accuse, but men who were all broken in different ways. Here is a world where people are broken on the inside, saying to John, what should we do to be right? You know, friends, never be fooled into thinking that you open the pages of the Bible and you're separated by thousands of years of distance. That, that is not true. Tax collectors, military people who know brokenness on the inside. This world is our world. This is a world where church-going people have got so used to lying to God about their lives that they think he no longer cares. 
This is a world where people have got rich at the expense of the poor, where the the powerful win and the weak lose. And into that world, Jesus comes. And when we get verse 22 of chapter 3, from there until the end of our passage, chapter 4, verse 15, what is the key word that just keeps getting repeated again and again and again? You are my beloved son. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son. See it in front of us? The son, the son, the son. All the way through to the start of chapter 4, the devil comes to him in verse 3 and says, If you are the son, if you are the son of God, this whole passage is about Jesus, the son of God. But now look. Look Look what else Luke has been showing us here with his story. He, he's done something incredible, hasn't he? Brilliant to make us just stand back and see the scale of it. Where does that genealogy in chapter 3 end? Verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See, we're meant to read, aren't we, from chapter 3 straight into chapter 4, don't do it if it's a church Bible, but scrub out the big number four. Okay, we, we meant to read straight into it. And what you realize is that Jesus is not the only son of God in the passage. Adam was the son of God. And Jesus is the son of God. And more than that, friends, not just Adam, not just Jesus, but three times in answering the devil, Jesus answers him from the book of Deuteronomy. From the book of Deuteronomy where Israel, God's people, were being tested in the wilderness. Forty years, Jesus is now tested for 40 days. And did you know that Israel in the Old Testament was also called God's son? God said to Pharaoh, Israel, my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Friends, do you see the scale of it? I hope it's standing up off the pages of the Bible. The scale of what Luke is giving us. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, striding center stage. But there are two other sons of God in the background, aren't there? It is masterful storytelling by Luke to link this Son of God, capital S, to Adam, the first Son of God, lowercase s. And how intriguing of Jesus to go off into the wilderness like another son of God, Israel. This is a big canvas story. Now, so much for something to see. That's the first point. Here's the second point. Friends, feel what hangs in the balance here. Feel what hangs in the balance. Something is hanging here on a knife edge. This is a conflict story, a battle story. Jesus is in the desert alone, weak. It's interesting, isn't it? At the end of verse 3, that at the end of the 40 days he was hungry. It seems that the devil comes to him right at the point where he is now most tired, most weak, most most close to the end of himself. And at that moment, something hangs in the balance. Something of epic proportions is on a knife edge. 
Let, let me try and illustrate it. This is an imperfect illustration, but try it like this. 45 years ago, December 1975, my mum and dad were waiting for me to be born. I was due at any day going to be their first child, and they tell me they have to do this, don't they? They tell me that they wanted a son. Now, I would imagine as would-be parents, the question in their minds is going to be something like this. If we have a son, what kind of son will he be? Will he be obedient or disobedient? And then along I came, and they slowly began to get the answers to those questions. July 1977, mum and dad are now expecting their second child. And this time there are two questions in their mind, aren't there? If we have a son, what kind of son will this son be? Will he be obedient or disobedient? Second question, will he be like the first son? Or will he be different? Will he do what the first son does or carve his own path in the world? And then in November 1980, mum and dad waited for their third child. If we have a son, what kind of son will this son be? Obedient or disobedient? And how will this third son compare to the first two sons? In Luke chapter 4, friends, those are exactly the questions being asked. Exactly the questions. What kind of son will this son be? Will he be an obedient son or a disobedient son? Will he be like the first two sons? Will he be like Adam? Will he be like Israel? Or will he be different? See, what what Luke is doing is taking sonship, the category of sonship, and he's using it to tell us the story of the whole Bible. Do you remember what happens? You open your Bible and you begin to read from Genesis onwards. Act 1. The curtain comes up on a beautiful garden. And we watch, don't we, in horror as into God's perfect creation, the first humans arrive with literally the world at their feet. And yet they eat the forbidden fruit disobey God's word, reject God's rule over their lives, and the beautiful garden set that we're watching on the stage becomes a wilderness. Thorns, disease, death arrive. We keep reading our Bibles. We come to Act 2. Israel, also called God's son, we watch them in the desert with God going out ahead of them, leading them to the promised land. What kind of son will they be? Are they going to be any different? We watch in despair and horror as Israel begins to grumble and complain and builds a golden calf. They disobey God, don't they? This son turns out to be no different from Adam. Now we come to the Gospels, Act 3. Luke takes up his pen Come and look at another son, he says, and we watch as Jesus the son goes alone into the desert. Adam and Israel have both been on the stage, but they're now off in the wings, aren't they? They, They've played their parts, they've said their lines, and the spotlight is falling on Jesus. What 
kind of son will he be? Can he possibly stand where Adam failed? Will he succeed where Israel fell? Did you see what hangs in the balance, friends? The salvation of the world hangs in the balance. Your salvation, my salvation. One of the things we often do, isn't it true, in, in reading the Bible is we, we so quickly make the Bible about us and we think, here is Jesus in the desert, simply giving you and me an example to copy of what to do when we face temptation. He quoted the Bible, we should quote the Bible. All of that, of course, is helpful. But it's not what Luke is doing, is it? Luke is saying, can you see who this son is? The story is so big because this is the story of the Bible running on repeat, but now with a new main character at the center. Is there anyone who can enter the world of failures and not himself be a failure? Not himself be tainted, not himself trip and stumble and fall where every other human being has tripped and fallen. Can anybody do it perfectly? Can the Lord Jesus make the world go in reverse? Can this son undo the treason of the first son and undo the carnage of the second son? You see, all all three of the temptations, just look at them very briefly with me. They all test Jesus' obedience, don't they, in slightly different ways. They test him to see what kind of son he will be. Verse 3, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here is a son who obeys God perfectly. After Adam, after Israel, here at last... Look at verse 5. Here is a son who serves God only. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. See, isn't Satan here tempting Jesus to go it alone? Everything the devil offers Jesus here, God has already promised to give to Jesus. He's going to give him authority and splendor, but it is all going to come after the cross. Jesus will inherit all these things when he dies and rises again and returns to his Father's right hand in glory. So here in the desert, the devil whispers in Jesus' ear and says, Look, I can give you all of this now. I can give it to you now. Forget the cross. Forget the suffering. Just take the glory now. It's the same temptation Adam faced in the garden, wasn't it? Do you remember what the certain serpent whispered? When you eat, you will be like God. I'll, I'll give you that. You can be your own God, Adam. You can be the ruler. You can, you can have the world at your feet. Why have someone else rule your life when you can be in charge? And Adam put himself in the place of God and served himself. Here is a son who now serves God only. Verse 9. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. 
Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here is a son who trusts God completely. Here, alas, friends, here is a son who is not like the other sons, a son who is not like you, not like me. Do you know that we we, we often get so much rightful comfort from the fact that Jesus is like us. Here is Luke saying, more glorious than that is the fact that he is not like us. He is the true son of the Father. So friends, I want to finish with this this evening. Something to see, the scale. Something to feel, the high stakes of this battle. But number three, something to cherish. Cherish the obedience of the Son. Cherish the obedience of the Son. You know, several years ago in the Sunday Telegraph, Joan Collins was interviewed, the actress. She said this, I have never done anything bad to anyone. Never. And that is one of the things I'm proud of. I have never hurt anybody. I have never been vicious about anybody. I have never taken any drugs. I have never tricked anyone. On the contrary, I can say that many, many people have done it to me. Men, husbands, business associates, lawyers, the list is endless. I basically think that when one meets one's maker, if I do, there won't be anything I've done that I need to be ashamed of. Nothing. Now, it is possible that some of us here this evening, it is possible that for some of us, thinking of ourselves as failures is the very last thought that would ever cross our mind. Maybe we're attractive people, gifted people, extremely capable, a good job, a good home, stable, loving relationships. There is nothing about us that looks or feels out of shape. What could there possibly be about us that makes us a failure? You know, Luke is saying here to us, friends, people who do not see failure in themselves do not see Jesus. You just don't see him. If you haven't discovered where you've failed, you will not discover who Jesus is. For, for he did not come to tweak us or improve us or add a little bit on or to supplement us. He came to rescue us, to save us. And people who think they haven't failed always think they don't need a savior. I'm guessing, though, that for most of us, for others of us, well, I don't know how far back in your mind you need to go to find something that you're ashamed of or something where you just know you disobeyed God, that you you took on the family likeness of Adam and Israel. How, How far back have you got to go this morning, this afternoon, last night? And for some of us, it is the opposite, isn't it? Maybe hearing that we are failures is almost unbearable. We we don't need a preacher to tell us that. It's all that we feel about ourselves. Our guilt and our shame stick to us, don't they, like tar? They plague us. They follow us like a shadow. All we're aware of is how sinful we are, what we've got wrong, what we fell short of. And Luke says to you this evening, friends, look in the mirror of God's word. 
Replace the mirror in your bedroom with the mirror of God's word. Yes, you are like Adam. Yes, you are like Israel. But can you see who is center stage? Not you. A Jesus who is bigger here than our biggest failure. A Jesus who does what we can never do. You know, it's easy to read the Bible like that, isn't it? Expecting the Bible to... I don't know, to function like a big stick to beat ourselves with. We read it expecting to be told to do more, to try harder, to be better, to be a better Christian. And the Bible just doesn't work like that, even with all of its commands. From the scale of this story, Jesus is here being presented to us by Luke saying, he is your hero before he is ever your example to copy. He is your hero Cherish his obedience, friends, more than your own failure. Off the pages of Luke 4 strides a champion, a a hero, a warrior, a king who goes alone into the desert to fight for his people. He is there now clothed in frail flesh and he is there in the desert for you and for me to fight on our behalf, to obey on our behalf, to serve and to trust on our behalf. It's very, very important to, to get this so clear in church life in all its ugliness and mess. And many of us have known that in different forms over the years. In lots of different ways in churches we know that, don't we? Some of you know I've been listening to uh, a really, um, I don't know what the word is, chastening podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's to do with a pastor in America, Mark Driscoll, and his church came spectacularly unstuck several years ago. And you can listen to the story. They're going into all the details of what exactly caused it and all the rest of it. And somebody pointed out this week that because people are now listening to this podcast, it is putting in the spotlight church leaders in a really unprecedented way. And people's expectations of church leaders are coming right out into the open. And one person said that after lockdown, after all the effects of the pandemic, uh, hadn't been to church in 18 months because church was closed, everything was online. And he listened to the same podcast that I've been listening to. And he said that because of that, listening to that, I'm no longer going back to church again. I'm never going back. And somebody said to him, why is that? Is that because you, you know, you've got problematic leaders? You see the same traits in your church leaders? as in this chap who fell from grace. And he said, no, I don't see any of those signs, but you just never know, do you? You just never know. And friends, what is happening there is that somebody has taken the Lord Jesus off center stage and put human leaders center stage. Trusting the pastor, trusting the elders, trusting whoever it is they listen to, whoever's books they buy. Luke is saying to us here, as the Lord Jesus moves through history, there are no heroes here in this church. No heroes in this denomination, in this country, leading God's people. No, there is only him. Only him. we, we, We sing it sometimes, don't we? A second Adam walk the earth, whose blameless life would break the curse, whose death would set us free to live with him eternally. 
a second Adam, a true Israel, a perfect son. So this evening, I want to invite you, and maybe you do this every Sunday as uh, we confess our sins together, but maybe you've never done it before. This evening would be a great time to do it. I, I want to invite you, friends, to take every single sin and every single failure of your life and take them to the Lord Jesus and let him be crushed by God for them for you. Let him do that. Every single moral, spiritual, personal failure that you know has spoiled your life and tainted God's world, let Jesus bear the punishment for it instead of you. As he is crushed for your sins, let let the Lord Jesus offer to his Father his perfect, obedient life for you. See, it's true, isn't it? In, in evangelical churches, we are very good at cherishing and loving and preaching Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. It's what we hear all the time and should hear. But how does his death work? How is his death a sacrifice for sins? The answer is that the death Jesus died only satisfied the Father because of the life Jesus lived. That that the whole point of creation was not bloody sacrifices. The whole point of creation was a beautiful life to be lived. That's right, isn't it? That's why we sang Psalm 40 together. If you just look at it again, the third verse of Psalm 40, burnt offerings and sacrifice are not the gifts you seek, but life lived out in faithfulness, your law to gladly keep it. These are the the words that Jesus sang when he came into the world. Hebrews chapter 10, he sang these words and then said to the Father, here I am, I have come to do your will. Somebody put it like this, in Jesus' perfect life and death, God was more satisfied. In his perfect life and death, God was more satisfied than in all of the blood that has run down Israel's altars through the ages. It is his whole life and not just his death that is offered up to the Father as a sacrifice for sin. So here we are this evening, friends, with all of our disobedient failings. And as he dies, Jesus is saying to his father, here, take my obedient life for them. Take my obedient life as theirs. Credit it to them. Make it count as theirs. I have lived it to you for them. So, friends, this evening, take every single sin, every single failure, hide them in his perfect, obedient life. Let him cover you and let what is his become yours and let what is yours become his. Take his obedient life, hide yourself in it and cherish it forever. Amen.